Thank you, Great Lakes Academy, for reminding us that we're going home one of these days. Amen? That's what I want to talk about this morning. Our glorious destiny, our inheritance, our home, where love will reign supreme and we will enjoy the blessedness of seeing God face to face. And also, um, thinking about that love that will not let us go. What a great blessing. Let's pray. Lord, we are gathered together in your house to receive direction and encouragement from you. Um, I'm not assuming, Lord, that everyone here has given you perfect permission to be the absolute leader of their life. So I'm praying, Lord, at the beginning of this message, may that be where we're all at when we're done. Thank you, Lord, for this fellowship we have. Thank you for our system of Christian education and all the dedicated people. Bless the parents that are sacrificing, the churches that are partnering, the staff and the teachers that are discipling. And now, Lord, help us all to determine again, we want to go home and not to love what's here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I've just finished... 21 hours of listening to a book called Appeasement. It is a history of what became official policy as well as mentality in the British government leading up to World War II. If there's one thing that is clear in the journey to World War II is that fear destroys confidence. And this morning, my message is entitled, Going Home, Preparing for and Passing Through the Time of Trouble. When Neville Chamberlain was Prime Minister of England, he had an inflated sense of his own ability to make good decisions and to negotiate. Unfortunately, his real experience had been fostered and developed in the business world, and he made a fatal mistake of thinking that all the people he was dealing with were just like him. The colossal mistake which became official British policy in the form of continuing to give away to Hitler things that Hitler never should have had, which destroyed, in effect, the League of Nations, the Locarno Treaty. First, it was the taking of Austria, the Anschluss. Later, it was the rearmament of the Rhineland. Later, it was the Germans in Czechoslovakia, the Sudetenland. Later, it was Poland. All along the way, fear had immobilized the British government. At one point in time, when a British envoy was surveying the amount of planes in the German Luftwaffe, they did not realize that as they were viewing the planes on the ground in one spot in Germany and then boarding the train, the Luftwaffe was flying those very same planes to the next airfield and landing them there to be counted again by the Britons. I'm going to tell you the point of the message before I go farther into the message. And it is this. There is a time of trouble coming on the face of this planet. And you don't need to be afraid. If you have recognized the Lord's call to release your hands from the things of this world that have tried to wrap themselves around you, and if you're willing to put your heart and soul 
into a life of daily surrender that leads you to the great colossal work that is before us, which is announcing to the world that the hour of judgment has an end and the invitation of mercy is to be heard. Years ago, one of the first sermons I preached was called The Red Badge of Courage. It probably wasn't the best sermon in the sense of its exegetical and theological underpinnings. But it was a message relative, and it, I didn't know how formative it would be. It was a message built off the book by Stephen Crane with the same title of a young man in the Northern Army who went into battle and was so terrified. He was the standard, well, I don't know if he was the standard bearer, but he went into a battle in the Civil War. He was so terrified that partway through the battle, he threw down all of his accoutrements of war and he ran. He did not just run back to where the army had marshaled itself. He ran farther away and farther away. But something got a hold of this young man and he realized that while he was now free from the sound of pieces of lead whizzing by his head, he was not free in his own person. And with a new resolve and a new sense of what he was about, he comes back to the same army. I don't know that it's the same battle. It's been probably 30 years since I preached that sermon. And he throws himself with a passion into a cause minus the fear, and he is an unstoppable force. Now, why does this sermon matter so much? I want to say right from the very beginning that Ellen White states that we shall have to stand before magistrates to answer for our allegiance to the law of God, to make known the reasons of our faith, and the youth should understand these things. Well, it's almost become the method of understanding the culture of our church that somehow these things shouldn't be thought about by the youth or anybody because all it does is make us afraid. Time of trouble. This morning I'm here to tell you that if one is willing to give Jesus Christ lordship of his life and understand the great privilege of pulling together and announcing to the world that he's coming soon, we can lose the things that make us afraid on the inside and gain the courage of moving from one victory to another in the actual engagements that will actually make the future something we're preparing for in the now. And it has nothing to do with saving up food or money or anything else. It has nothing to do with continually examining ourselves to make sure we're okay. By the way, friends, there's a lot of Seventh-day Adventists who conscientiously do want to be right with God, and they examine and examine and examine themselves when the real call is the Abrahamic call to move out of an examination of our own readiness and be concerned about somebody else's readiness. I want to tell you, there's three phases you can be in. You can be in the self-centered phase, and I'm sure there are some people that are listening to me this morning who are in the self-centered phase of living. Everything is about them. If it doesn't suit them, then it isn't going to suit anybody. Don't anybody put any pressure on them. Don't anybody call them to a higher standard. Don't anybody do anything that gets in their way. I don't suspect most of the individuals here today are in that category, but it's possible. It seems that we have the sinking pulpit a village here. <laughs> Let's change that around. So my hope and prayer this morning is that if you've been living like that, you'll see a new vision of the love of God for you and have a new heart to love God in return. 
But then there's a very subtle, dangerous place for Seventh-day Adventists. They're not self-centered. They're just self-focused. And you say, what's the difference? Well, the difference is, is that we read these narratives in the scripture and sometimes these segments in the spirit of prophecy and we realize that our heart is to be cleansed from sin. But somehow we think looking at what's bad and not wanting to be it is going to turn us into what's good. But I'm here to tell you, you will not become what's right by trying not to be what's wrong. When you focus on yourself, you could be a very conscientious, self-focused Seventh-day Adventist and it will ruin you. You see, what Adventists are to be, what true Christians are to be, is they are to be self-aware and self-honest so that when the Lord God in the universe says to you, you know, you didn't get that right. That was wrong. You didn't show respect to your parents. You didn't talk right to your spouse. You shouldn't be gossiping about your boss. And you shouldn't be stealing time by being lazy on the job. Whatever he wants to say. That is the kind of honesty that allows for a true intimate relationship. But the devil, he's, he's slick. So he's going to come along and take some sentiment that has a measure, certainly, of value. But he's somehow going to twist it around so that it actually ruins the journey, immobilizes the Christian, makes them afraid, and knows how unfit they are. And it's that unfitness that is potentially driving them into deeper cycles of self-focus. Friends, we do need Jesus. We are unfit. It's a good thing that he's more than everything for us to make us fit. But our focus on Christ and our daily ordinary lordship, letting him be lord of our life, focusing on what he's calling us to do and who he is, is what's going to take us from being self-focused and to being savior-focused and self-aware. So at the beginning of this message, I'm here to tell you, every person who is of an age of reason can listen to this message and understand what it's about. And every person that desires to go home or everyone who has a home should take just a moment to think about what it would feel like to the ones who want you at home for you either to be uninterested or afraid of what stands between you and home. Friends, I'm here to tell you today, when you came to Christ, the Holy Spirit put a seal on your heart that distinguished you from all those who have yet to recognize the Lordship of Christ. That seal will be sealed again farther down the road as we come to the nearness of Christ's return. There will be a special sealing upon us relative to the apocalyptic or the end time issues. That seal will be over the living presence of God in our life and evidenced by the Sabbath. And you know what? While there will be turbulence between here and home, I'm here to assure you this morning that God will carry us with those everlasting arms underneath us and we are not to face the future with fear. So the coronavirus is here and there and it might be everywhere. So we've lost $2 trillion out of the stock market in five days. You do know there's a time coming when the only people will have what they need will be the ones who are receiving it from God. Money won't do you very much good. All right, so let's go somewhere. Going home, preparing for 
and passing through the time of trouble. Uh, I love your story hour. I love listening as a little boy. My aunt got us the stories back when they were on these big pieces of black vinyl and they rotated 33 and a third times a minute. And you'd set the needle down and it'd be a little scratchy and sometimes it'd stick and repeat itself. But you know, there was a message I heard as a boy which I want in your head as we go into this. It was the three empty sacks. You know, Sir Hildebrand, Sir James, and I can't remember the last, sir, but it was time for a new king and the king had no heir. And so he called his three knights together and he said he was looking to have someone that was revealed by the journey with these sacks what, what he should do. One of the servants went out, one of the knights, as it were, went out and immediately did amazing things with his sack. One became rich, one became powerful, but one of those knights saw the degradation and the poverty and the suffering of humanity and he used his sack and he filled it over and over again and when he came back he had nothing to offer the king. He was the last person and when he presented his sack it was full of holes. But interestingly enough, the use of his sack in the right way became the preparation to receive the kingdom. You see, friends, this great calling, there's a world out there who doesn't know God. They only have little sound bites, and the sound bites are twisted and terrible. It's our use of the sack. It's our use of the privilege of the message, our networking, our unity, our corporate pro proclamation, our individual witness. It is our focus on God and an understanding of the gift shared over and over again that actually is our preparation for the time of the end. And to try to prepare for the time of the end in any other way is to make sure your little life of self-focus gets tighter and tighter until finally it moves from self-focus where it's trending anyway over into self-centered. All right. Devil have never wanted us to go home. He's always hated our home. He sought to ruin God's home. Then he sought to ruin our Eden home. He wasn't allowed to ruin our Eden home, but he was allowed to move us out of it. When we think about how he related within not too many chapters in the Bible, about 10 chapters, we find how that he's corrupted this earth to where it has to be cleansed by a flood. In chapter 12, God intersects with Abraham. He doesn't want Abraham making his way into Canaan. And Canaan is actually accosted with a famine and Abraham's children find themselves down in Egypt. And there they're enslaved, anything but a letting God's people go home. Finally, after a conquest and the, the great kings of David and Solomon, we find the nation slowly sliding into apostasy and it's exiled. Anything but God's people fulfilling their destiny at home. When the exile's over, strange thing is, most of the people that went off to Babylon don't want to go home. I'm talking to several of you right now. Whether it's your video games or your sports or your money or your school or your, your occupation or whatever it is, there's, there are people listening to me who if they were really honest, they'd have to say, I'm not really that interested in going home. Represented by a large swath of, of the remnant who weren't quite as much the remnant as they thought they were. When they actually got a group to go home, they were intimidated and scared 
If it weren't for the message and man of, of Nehemiah and Ezra, not only would the wall not be rebuilt, but the temple would have forever only had a foundation. That temple sat there for probably 15 years with only a foundation in the ground because the people, even after they came back to Israel, started enjoying their nice homes. So the prophet would write, how is it that you're comfortable with your paneled houses, but you don't have any interest in my house? When we think about the fact that the next great thing breaking on the scene is the actual appearance of Jesus, the devil had so twisted the expectations of the people that they didn't want the Messiah God sent. Send us somebody else. And after Jesus was raised, this new unique group were persecuted for three centuries by the Romans and then they were co-opted by the Roman government. And thus began a thousand plus years of, of spiritual night. We call it the dark ages. Anything but letting us have a beautiful home, the devil is out to destroy everything we have that resembles the goodness of God. And finally, in the 1500s, with the breaking of a new dawn, the, the Bible in our language, now Satan realizes that he's losing his hold. And what does he do to destroy our chance to find this earth moving back towards its heavenly destiny? He starts destroying people who, who believe their consciences are captive to the Word of God. And then we find ourselves where we are right now. Where are we? As we watch corruption and persecution swing back to blessings and apathy and easement. Here we are in the 21st century in the age of indulgence and opportunity. And while I would like to take every modicum of fear out of every person listening to me today, I should like to extract from you everything that would make you afraid of seeing Jesus coming in the clouds. That's my goal. There are decisions you have to make that stand in the way of what I want to do. Because unfortunately, if you live in this country and you're sitting in one of these pews today, you are the cream de la cream of opportunity. You may be fighting to exist. You may say, Pastor, that's everybody but me. Even on the lower end of our spectrum, we have more civility, more security, more opportunity, more distractions. Look, the devil's really smart. He's made all the things that are designed to take away our relish for home. He's made most of them free. All you have to do is give up a little bit of information about yourself so they can track you better. I want you to think about it. This is where we're at. There's two types of things that will keep you from being bold, holy bold. One is being in love with this world and the other is not being engaged in the battle between right and wrong. These two things together, if we were to release unto God in a moment of true self-surrender and say, Lord, it's my talent, it's my treasure, it's my time. It's all yours. I'm afraid of what you might ask me to do but I'm giving it to you anyway. And then the other thing is to move away from those self-focused lives. I know lots of self-focused families. All the focus is on the family. And we're gonna make sure the kids aren't drug out to this and aren't drug out to that. Makes me think of that old adage that guy said, I had a drug problem when I was a kid. My mama drugged me here, my mama drugged me there. And most of the places my mama drugged me were for my good. We don't have that kind of drug problem anymore. We have a different one. Our young people must be given a sword, must be given work gloves, must be given a chance for a heart to expand, to be in the game. They are to know about these things because they are the generation, by God's grace, some of them especially under the age of 18, 
who won't be easily quieted. But their holy boldness and their preparation will be a final and forceful witness. When I think about Satan and the family, he's tried to destroy it for years. Polygamy, adultery, grinding poverty to where people have to work constantly. Abounding leisure and perpetual immaturity. I'm thinking especially of men and I'm thinking of especially now. Keep your games and your leisure and your fun going like you're still 13 again. It's time for men to become men, especially when we understand storm clouds are gathering. How about discontented licentiousness? With one flick of the thumb, you can be looking like you're reading your emails, but you're not. And should anybody get to where they could see your screen, you could be respectable again, even though what was on there was filthy and dirty. Then we deconstruct what makes up a marriage. We have to make everybody equal in the same. There's no such thing as male and female. I want to tell you, I'm glad I grew up in a home with a mom and a dad. And that balance was beautiful for me in spite of my parents' struggles. And my parents stuck together in spite of their struggles. And I want to tell you, at 56 years of age, I still enjoy talking to a mom who's married to my dad and a dad who's married to my mom. When I lose my parents, I will have lost a lot. And for all those that represent that generation in this church, I still get to feel a little bit like a boy in your presence, especially if you're a gray head found in the way of righteousness. Then there's the overreach of opportunity. I've got to fulfill myself. What's left behind are the the a priori or the obligations that came first to the children. You want that advanced degree? That's fine. Maybe you'll get it someday. But remember, the children need the basic degrees that get them to graduate into adulthood. And they get them primarily from you. And then there is the dissension in the home and divorce. Marriage is hard. The devil hates families. I'm here to tell you, friends, no matter whether or not your marriage, your life, your family has been good or bad, when Jesus comes into the mix, there's a beauty. And Jesus offered that beauty to us when he told us there's a mansion in heaven, and inside that mansion, there's a room with your name on it. Three types of trouble. Take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to the book of Daniel, chapter 12. There is a time of trouble coming upon this world such has never been. Daniel chapter 12. It says, Now at that time, verse 1, Michael the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. Don't read by it without noticing it. Michael, the great prince, the leader of the armies of heaven, who stands guard over the sons of your people, that's you and me, will arise. And there will be time of trouble such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be what? Delivered, rescued, whatever your version says. Now, I'm going to keep sticking to my basic premises. If you've got your hands on the world, if Babylon is in you, then we need Jesus to let Babylon be taken out of us. It's not easy and it's not able on our own to do. Our love of the world 
unrelinquished to Jesus, we'll relinquish our love for Jesus. And the other thing we need is we need to be completely in the Great Commission, the final three angels' messages. But I'm here to tell you, this time of trouble is a time of trouble after the people of God are sealed, probation is closed, and what is going to happen is like the seven plagues that fell on the nation of Egypt, God is going to show this world that you can't treat his people like this and that the end is near. This time of trouble is one, and like our scripture read this morning, I enjoyed listening to that and Tiffany read, where God has his hand over his people and around his people and nothing will touch his people during this time of trouble. This time of trouble is not your trouble. You need to know this. This time of trouble is the trouble for all those who rejected the final invitation of mercy. This time of trouble is what comes when the Holy Spirit is finally taken away and Satan can do what he wants on this earth. This time of trouble is not your trouble. And everybody listening to me here today or on the internet or wherever this message goes needs to understand God never intended that you should be troubled by the future trouble. Jesus said, sufficient today is the trouble thereof. Have you ever read that? Jesus will have marked his own and his own will be covered by his own protecting presence. This is not your trouble. What you ought to be troubled about is that there's tons of people out there who are just wandering through life with myriad blessings that are turning into curses as our wealth is weaponized against us and they are falling more in love with this world and less in love with mercy, justice, and truth. And they are walking straight into the arms of a love of leisure and a love of luxury so great that when justice is what's on the scales, so Crystal Knock back in Germany, when they killed and pillaged Jews by the thousands and the rest of the nations did nothing. The sense of justice was paralyzed by self-interest and self-focus. And they could run over Locarno and the League of Nations and the Jewish people and nobody did anything. What we ought to be troubled about is that there are millions of people who don't understand that's where their lives are headed and trending and there will be a fear so deeply leveraged by Lucifer during this point in time who has lured them in, tied them up, bound them down and stepping on them and nobody cares. Do we care before that moment arrives? Does the Seventh-day Adventist church entrusted with the greatest message ever given to mortal men do they care? Or will we plod on through our lives making sure our futures are padded and we've got our homes nestled amongst the rocks? This time of trouble is not yours. Don't be afraid of it. Now there are two times of trouble where you will be afraid. Let's talk about the one that precedes this moment. In the spirit of prophecy it's referred to as the little time of trouble. There is a period of time from when the Sunday law is given until the seal of God and the mark of the beast is given during which the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on God's people. And they are going to go forth with a fresh vigor that exceeds the apostolic awakening in Acts chapter 2. And the earth is going to be enlightened with their glory. God's going to give the world one more chance to wake up and he's going to use you and me if we're willing. 
He's calling us into a preparation for the Holy Spirit. He's calling us together to the prayer meetings and the small groups. He's calling us together to the missionary meetings and the Vespers. He's calling us together to the evangelistic efforts. He's calling us to prayer for a lost world who doesn't know and doesn't care unless the stock market loses 13% in five days. Yes, God is good. He's not letting the parade to perdition to march on without a few clouds hovering over it. But before the seal of God is placed on the, sh on the forehead and before the mark of the beast is given, there is a little time of trouble because the battle supercharges again. And God's people have regained the outpouring of the Spirit, the presence of God in their midst, the surrender of their lives. Folks, we're not supposed to be waiting for it. We're to be anticipating it with showers of refreshing before it. But there's a last battle over the souls of men. And this is the moment when God's people are going to find themselves under great duress and physical persecution but I want to tell you something I'd sure rather be the man that's moving into the battle with a sense that God is by my side and as our scripture said all of my days are written down folks I'm not dying one day earlier than God has in mind for me to die do you know this do you understand your days are marked out and you're not dying one day earlier than God wants you to lay down and rest either if you don't know this, then you have to walk through every day in fear of what's going to get you. God's actually calling us into a life of daily surrender. This is the preparation. It's a life in which Christ is Lord of today. Yes, during this little time of Jacob's trouble, there will be some who go to prison and some who lay down their lives. But I'll tell you what, they're going to be rejoicing like Peter in the dungeon and Paul and Silas in the jail, that they were considered worthy to be used, but you don't get there without sensing what a great sacrifice was made for you and how the heart of heaven has been poured out and what a great privilege it is to be called and associated with the living God. It's that little time of trouble in which many are going to peel off. It's that shaking moment. And what you have to decide, am I going this way or going that way? It's all the little decisions, self-focused and self-centered that have me kind of bending this way, whereas self-aware self and Savior-focused, I keep moving and leaning this way. And when that moment breaks and the Spirit's poured out, I don't want my heart to have sat crusty for years thinking that somehow the water's going to permeate and soak in. You see, friends, God is looking to refresh us with little forays that build faith, engaging the enemy right now. He's stretching us out of our comfort zones. He's teaching us how to hear the voice like Abraham. Abraham didn't know where he was going, and you don't know how every day is going to end up either. We're all on an Abrahamic journey. It's just some of us are constantly stressed about it. And some of us have learned that wherever soever he leads me is the right place to be. Listen. When Churchill finally sat in the PM position, the prime minister position, nothing could have been more unsettling to Hitler than to realize the age of appeasement was over and there was a man who would rally with rhetoric and resolve an entire nation in defense of freedom. It makes a difference. You can stand for 40 days like Saul and his soldiers did at the Valley of Elah and you can listen to the giant come out and taunt you. This is what lots of Adventists are doing. Our schools are closing, our churches are getting smaller, our resources are shrinking. 
Is there not a movement of God upon the hearts of men and women to run to the cause and say, who does this Philistine think he is to defy the causes of the living God? The problem is, is that without any previous chapters of fighting bears and lions and without a full surrender of our heart to God, we're just one of the quaking, shaking. That's exactly where the devil wants us. The world to warn and to win. And here we are, shivering in our boots. It's got to go. That's why preachers need to speak up and say, it's sin to be in love with the world. It's sin to let its tentacles bind about you while you fail to cut them by acknowledging the call of Christ that this is wrong and this is right. Follow me. It's sin. It's an act of great sinful omission to watch a world slide off into the abyss without throwing them a lifeline. It's sin. Our schools, our homes, our churches are to all be focused on two things. Jesus, his presence, whether it's in private communion or whether it's in training to reach someone who's lost. This is where the devil wants us, afraid. During that little time of Jacob's trouble, we are going to see the likes of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in gifts and presents. We're going to see a harvesting like never has been seen in the entire world. And what would it be like to be left out? I was once at a meeting where they were fasting and praying. I didn't want to stay for the rest of the meeting. So I left. I stopped in town on the way out. And I thought to myself, what if the Holy Spirit's poured out and I'm not there? I don't really like fasting. I got in my car and pushed the buttons and drove it back to the place where the meeting was and there was no noticeable outpouring of the Holy Spirit but for whatever small reorienting of my life that needed to take place there, I thought to myself, if you weren't one of the 500 or the 120 when the room was shaken or the Spirit was poured out, that's too bad. If you would have been there, you could have been part of it. Yes, I'm going to shake the ground underneath you just a little bit so you're not shaking when the ground shakes in the future. Yes, I'm here to, I'm here to shake up your family habits. I'm here to shake up your self-focus and make you self-aware and Savior-focused. Because the last thing we need and the main thing we do need, the last thing we need is a bunch of self-focused, fearful Seventh-day Adventists. What we must have is Savior-focused, unafraid because they're facing the foe with Jesus by their side. And their faith is growing and the future is not fearful because not one of your days is determined by you, just like one of your hairs can't fall without his notice. All right, let's go to the last of the three. Take your Bible and turn over to the book of Jeremiah chapter 30. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 30. This is going to be the most intense one. And it will have nothing to do with food or water. Jeremiah chapter 30. It's in the context of God's promise to restore. Now I need you to know that so much of what's in the Bible is God constantly coming up with a new plan because what he wanted to do didn't happen. When God brought the exiles back after the days of Babylon, God wanted to restore the kingdom in such a way with a new fidelity, but it didn't happen. 
God never intended that they should destroy and kill his son. Jesus could have died just with the weight of the world on him, not with the hand of Rome and the motivation of Jerusalem. But they refused over and over again. So this directive to restore will be ultimately fulfilled in the lives of the last generation when we cross that spiritual Jordan and we actually inherit the new Jerusalem. Verse 3, Jeremiah 30, For behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Now, these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Lord, I've heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Now, folks, this is going to become the time of Jacob's trouble. Ask now and see if a man can give birth. Why then do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great, there's none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, comma, but he will be saved from it. Now take your Bibles and go back to the book of Genesis and let's figure out what this is. Genesis chapter 31, the time of Jacob's trouble. I'm going to explain it to you. And I'm going to dissect it briefly here. The time of Jacob's trouble is the most intense moment of crisis for the remaining faithful people of God. There is a time of little, a little time of trouble after the Sunday laws during which the Holy Spirit is poured out and there is this glorious renewing of the battle and this harvesting of the lost. There is the close of probation after the seal of God and the mark of the beast during which there are seven last plagues. That's not your trouble. It's not that you're going to be sitting in luxury anywhere. You might be suffering some hardship, but the world's being ravaged by the removal of the Holy Spirit and God's hand is on you. That's not your trouble. But this trouble, if you get to live, is your trouble. Now, I already told you that the seal of the living God has been poured out at the time that Jacob's trouble comes upon the faithful remnant. What does that mean? That means Jesus has left the most holy place and the pronouncement has been made, he who is holy, let him be holy still, and he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. That means your fate is determined, you are saved. Can I hear the word amen? Amen. But the devil so hates God and so hates his people that even though the seal of God rests upon these remnant, these 144,000, Satan is allowed to come and ravage their personal spiritual experience and remind them of every black and dirty thing they've ever done. For what purpose? Does he not know the mark has been given? Does he not know the seal has been given? Of course he does. But Satan is so vitriolically hateful to God and to his people that if he could get one to give up in despair during this moment, he would laugh in the face of God. Genesis 31. 
the imagery, the typology. What's it all about? Jacob has lived for 20 years in exile. Why? Because he stole the birthright from his brother, lied to his father, and ran away for fear of his life. After those 20 years, he's been lied and cheated to as well by his uncle Laban, his mama's brother. Remember when Jacob came out of the womb, he was hanging on to the heel of his brother. And remember also before he was born, God told his mom and dad, the younger will have the birthright, not the older. Unfortunately, mom and dad went different ways spiritually and their marriage did not stay close. And so when they came to the middle ages of their lives, mama heard daddy telling older son Esau, go get me some game because I'm gonna give it to you right now. And mama said to younger boy, you go get a goat and we're gonna put the skins on you and I'm gonna make it like he likes to make it and I know how he likes to make it and you're gonna go in there. And, and the younger son said, but what if it looks like, listen to the language, what if it looks like I'm deceiving him? I'm telling you friends, the voice of the Holy Spirit that led Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees was speaking to Jacob, his grandson saying, don't do this. But he wanted it bad. His big brother didn't really care except for the money. And mama knew he should have it. So we're going to do God's thing our way. This is the great temptation. I'm, I don't want to be bad. I'm going to do God's thing my way. Unfortunately, it set in place two decades of self-imposed exile. And there was Jacob after 20 years of being lied and cheated on by his father-in-law in which God finally came along and said, it's time for you to go home. The problem was Jacob had learned these bad habits. He was the deceiver, the supplanter, the sneak. And so he decided to sneak away. So he calls his two wives out and he says, we're leaving. And they said, we need to leave. Even we can see how rotten our dad is. And so they sneak away while Laban is shearing the sheep and they get a three-day jump start. But with as many cattle and children as Jacob had, three days head start isn't enough. Within seven days, they meet up in the hill country of Gilead. The night before Laban meets up to show him who's boss, God comes and gives him a dream. And he says, you better not say anything that I don't give you permission to say to Jacob. Finally, after they have their encounter and Laban says, you stole my gods. And, and Jacob says, we didn't. Of course, Rachel did have them. Finally, Jacob gets a moment to tell Laban what he really thinks. Verse 36, 31, chapter 31, verse 36 of Genesis. Laban became angry. He contended with Laban. And Jacob said to Laban, what is my transgression? What is my sin that you've hotly pursued me? He tells about how his wages were changed 10 times and that God blessed him anyway. Friends, don't let that pass you by. If you're in business, you're in partnership with God for a purpose to advance God's cause and bless suffering humanity. You can't be done wrong unless the Lord knows being done wrong is how to get your character right. And along the way, God blessed Jacob anyway. Verse 42, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of and the fear of Isaac had not been for me. Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands. So he rendered judgment last night. What was that judgment? It was a dream. God came down to Laban. It'd be fantastic to do a series of sermons on dreams in the Bible. Jacob moves on. 
He makes a covenant with Laban. Come to verse, chapter 32, verse 1. Now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Did you catch that? The angels of God met him. He's been told to go back. He didn't need to sneak away. What he needed was the courage and the love to have an accountability moment with his father-in-law. How many listening to me here today are too afraid to have the right God-ordained moment, not the nagging, not the nipping little dog moment with a family member, but the actual God-prompted, let's sit down and talk moment. Jacob should have told Laban he was leaving, not snuck away. There's angels right now encamping with Jacob on his way. Jacob, verse 2, when he saw them, said, this is God's camp. So he named the place Mahanium. That means two camps. There was a group of angels, literal, visible, camping in front of his troop, and a group of angels, literal, visible, camping on the backside of his troop. Tell me what you have to be afraid of when you've got angels encamping around you. Doesn't it sound like David say, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fears him and does what? Delivers them. Every night you go to bed, you better not go to bed thinking the police are your salvation. You better go to bed knowing there's an angel of the Lord camping around your house every single night. This is a great God we serve. Jacob carries on. He thinks it's time to send word that I'm coming home. He sends word to Esau. And Esau sends no word back. He doesn't say a thing. The messenger come back and says, he's coming and there's 400 fighting men coming with him. And Jacob goes into panic mode. Absolute panic mode. Listen, friends, if you can't identify with some of these people, you're not slowing down enough to read the Bible and think about what it would feel like. This is the wild west of the ancient Near East. And if Esau wants to kill him, there'll be no one to intervene except Mahanaim. Group of angels here, group of angels here. But it's as if Jacob forgets. Jacob has other plans. He decides that he's, he's not only scripted what everything's supposed to be said, my Lord this, I'm your servant that. But finally he comes to a place where he says, all right, I'm gonna divide into two companies. I want you to get a sense. There's nothing wrong with good ideas. I believe in them. I get so many from you. But I'm going to tell you something. When God says to do something and you start acting like God isn't going to go with you as you're doing it, especially when you have the presence of angels before and behind or the promises of God's very presence with you, you are headed towards an unnecessary type of trouble. And that's where Jacob was going. But the devil knows how to take advantage of our weaknesses. So he tells him, tell Esau, I'm unworthy of all your loving kindness, verse 10. And of all the faithfulness, actually he's praying here, showing your servant, for only with my staff have I crossed this Jordan. But now I've become two companies, deliver me, I pray. He spent the night there, verse 13. And then he started sending gifts, female goats and male goats and camels and donkeys. And there's supposed to be a delay between all of them. He's trying to show Esau, I don't need your money. I don't need your birthright. I don't need the property. Tell him that your servant Jacob. And finally, we come down to verse 20. And you shall say, behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will, this version says, appease him with the present that goes before me. 
So he took his wives, sent them across the Jabbok River, and he knelt down to pray. And this, as Ellen White describes it in Patriarchs and Prophets, is a wild west part of the world. And he knows there's murderers and thieves out there. And of course, he doesn't know where Esau is. And as he kneels down to pray, somebody grabs him. And he spins around and grabs back. And there at the dark hour of midnight, Jacob and Jesus are locked in a wrestling match and Jacob doesn't know that in answer to his prayer, the Prince of the Covenant, Christ himself, has come down to give the answer. And the answer is, I'm right here. I will be with you. They wrestle all night long. Jacob thinking with his adrenaline pumping and his muscles quivering, almost superhuman strength, Patriarchs and Prophets says. And finally, as the slight light of day is in the eastern horizon, his adversary, which is really his savior, takes a finger and touches the strongest joint on the human body and separates it without a blow. And all of a sudden, Jacob, upon whom the Holy Spirit's been wrestling through the night, realizes he's in the arms of God. And all of a sudden, he goes from trying to push away. I don't know if he grabs him around the waist or he's just got him by the arms. I don't know what it is, but Jesus says, it's time for me to go. And Jacob says, you can't go yet. I need a blessing. Now, all through the night, while Jacob was trying to get away, Lucifer was saying to him, you're bad. You're unworthy. Actually, Lucifer was pleading or petitioning God to let Jacob be destroyed because of the heinous of his sin, especially against the backdrop of the faithful progeny that he was of Abraham or faithless in the shadow of faithfulness. God tells Lucifer, no. Jacob realizes he's not worthy of being saved. But then a strange thing happens. As the sun is coming up and his hip is out of joint, he's in great pain, but he won't let go. He asked God for this blessing. Now God talks to him about his sin. There is no peace in any relationship without reconciliation with God. And while God will not bring up your sin to separate you from him, God will see if you come to a position of humiliation, repentance, and self-surrender. And he says, what is your name? Listen, you can't come down and answer to a prayer and you can't wrestle all night with your identity slightly hidden. You can't be there without knowing the man's name already. But he says to Jacob, now who have you been? There is an honest coming to moment with God in which one realizes he is so unworthy of the presence of God and the provision of forgiveness. Jacob had already confessed his sin and yet God says to him, do you know who you've been, Jacob? I'm Jacob, heel grabber, blessing stealer, father liar. Not anymore. You are now Israel, for you have wrestled with God and overcome. He releases his grasp, his muscles shivering from the exertion, and he lays there on the ground until he can gather his clothing properly about him, and he stands up on his staff and comes lean, leaning on it towards the river Jabbok. He crosses that river, 
And everyone knows something terrible has happened to their daddy, their husband. The only truth of the matter is it was not terrible in the wrong way. It was glorious in the transform, transformation. That very same night, God sent an angel to Esau. And Esau is confronted with his own self and with his brother's repentance and humiliation. And when they meet the next day, 400 men with swords hanging by their sides are touched as the tears flow down the face of Esau who had anything but sympathy and love in his heart for this brother just a few hours before. That night of wrestling, when our fate has already been sealed, that moment when God's people who have been sealed for salvation are accosted by the devil himself, the Holy Spirit is God and as if God lets them be buffeted and in those moments they see how unfit and how unworthy they are. What they don't know is that Jesus who no longer needs to reside in the sanctuary. Listen, this has caused so many people so much consternation. Do you know that you will live without an intercessor? But do you know that you will have been sealed in the salvation experience with you have God will be certain and secure. You will not need him in the exact same way. But will you still need him? Oh, you will still need him. When Satan is buffeting us with, and the Holy Spirit, not withdrawn from us, but withdrawn from the world, when that moment comes and we think there's no way I could be saved, we will be hanging on, or I should say, let's keep the symbology and the typology in place. When it looks like there's no way we can be saved, God will be hanging on to us until we figure out we are in the hands of a Savior. What did Jesus say to Peter after Peter argued with him? Oh no, I don't love position and power. I don't have these problems in my heart. Of course, he didn't say all that, but that was behind it. I'm not going to run away from you because you're not what I thought you were. Oh yes, you will. But I prayed for you. <laughs> Satan wants to sift you. But I want you to remember something, Peter. I've got a hold of you. And I'm not letting go. Listen, friends, Spirit of Prophecy tells us that heaven and earth could pass away before the mercy of our God would give way in regards to our need. I want you to think about the whole universe imploding into a black hole. That is more likely to happen than Jesus letting go of you in any hour of trouble. And there's to be no Seventh-day Adventist Christians afraid except of one thing, the perfidy, the falsehood, the tendency to lie about the things that have woven their way into our hearts. That's the only thing you should be worried about. But please don't go into self-focus mode. Just bow before Jesus in self-awareness and say, Lord, woe is me. Perfect love kicks out fear. The Greek word is ekbalo. I mean, it's like grab them by the shirt collar like a bouncer in a bar and throw them out. I'm here to tell you there's not a one of us listening to this today who don't need to know that's what perfect love can do, but nothing else can do it. You self-focus all you want about not wanting to be that thing that's chasing you. You run a race like this, I'm going to tell you, you're going to run all over the place. You run a race like this, you're going whoosh with Jesus. We don't need any more self-focused Christians. 
We need a church that's focused on the world and a love relationship with Christ that won't let anything get in between. This is where we're supposed to be. When Hitler finally had to go on the BBC and say, we will fight them on the beaches, we will fight them in the air. The resolve of a nation was turned. No wonder he was time's man of the century. Appeasement was over. Self-focus was done. It was time to stand up for the one, the nation in that case, in our case, for the glory of the one who's already paid the price for the redemption of the legions of this earth who know not that your sins can be forgiven by faith and that the assurance of salvation is a gift. Friends, may God help us. May he shake us and awaken us. It is the atoning blood of Jesus. It is the provision of his presence. It is the promise of his deliverance. How many dreams will be given in the future? How many divine interventions will transpire for the sake of his if loved ones? I don't know. But if we don't give him permission to be in charge today, you save up as bazillion dollars and as many pounds of food as you want, it will never give you the heaven to go into heaven with because the heaven I'm supposed to have and the heaven he wants to give to you is the heaven of being a little child with a daddy who's got it under control and I don't need to be afraid. Listen, I fight this battle regularly. How far should I push this organization to stretch? That's a God thing. How far should I stretch in my own family? But I do know this, I've raised four children and I would never in all of my life or a million lifetimes after, I would never put them in a situation where they knew I had the power to set it up right and they were so terrified that I had set it up wrong. I would never put them in a situation where they could not rise up with the sense of what I gave them and be what they were called to be. I would never do that. And if they were afraid of me and didn't want me to come and didn't want to come to my home, I'd be devastated. What have we done to God? This mighty Seventh-day Adventist church, not mighty in size, but we are to be the Gideons and the Davids. We are to be the Nehemiahs and the Abrahams. We are to be the Peters and the Pauls and the Deborahs. We're to be all these things. It's just time for us to quit worrying about what's out there and start deciding that God can be Lord of this day. My time. Some of you need your schedules all rearranged because you're digging, you're digging the ground up so you can put deeper roots down in for life in this earth with a glorious future. Well, it's not there. Some of you need your treasure rearranged because if two trillion can come off the books in five days, another two trillion might peel off in another five days. I had someone come to me just a week or two ago and say, I've got a relative that wants to give some money for something. They've made some good investments and they realize that we ought to do something with it now. Well, I'll tell you, now today is not as good as now a week ago. It's not for me to tell you what to do. But the essential journey of every day is the Abrahamic one where God can talk and we will listen. That's what I'm calling you to today. That's what God's calling you to today. Years ago, there was a group of botanists in the highlands of Scotland. And they were along those cliffs 
And they saw a specimen they wanted, but there was no way they were going to go get it. But they thought maybe one of the nationals might have the courage to do it. So they summoned a young shepherd boy and they said, would you be willing to go over this cliff and get us that specimen? We'll tie this rope to you and hold on to you while you go over the side. And they offered a large sum of money and he said, yes, I'll do it. The rope was gotten and he said, no, you'll have to wait a minute. He went off to get the person to hold the rope who just happened to be his dad. You know that vision of the narrow way that's in the basement of the general conference that Ellen White had where the road keeps getting narrower and narrower? I think a lot of us have rejected that vision. I think a lot of us think for our lives with our good educations and our incomes the road ought to get wider. Eventually, there's a rope hanging down. Nobody knows what it's tied to and nobody knows what it goes over. But eventually, the only thing we have is the only thing we need. I'm telling you, I'm as given to fear as any of the rest of you. But God has forced me out on a limb so many times that the same limb that made me afraid 30 years ago doesn't make me afraid anymore. And that's what his plan is for all of us. What I think we all have to decide is, can he be God? And will God for the day be enough? That's what I'm appealing to you. Can he be God? And will God for today be practical and enough? If there's anything that kills me, it's the idea that God's church could keep backing up, hunkering down, giving up, letting go. When like Jacob and Caleb said, Joshua and Caleb said, if God's with us, what do we have to be afraid of? There are people listening to me today right now upon whom the Spirit of God is moving on your heart. I'm appealing to you to move. Let's sing our closing Closing hymn is going to be 612 Onward Christian Soldiers. Once again, 612 Onward Christian Soldiers. Thank you for standing.
pianist plays quietly. There are people listening here today. The Spirit's moved on your heart. Fear has been directing your actions. You are living under the cloud and the shackle of anxiety all the time. God wants to take that away from you. He's calling you to an actual belief that if he says it's time to go home, he'll go there with you. That he's going to take care of your kids' needs, your needs, your, your occupational needs. And so I'm appealing to that group of people right now, whether you're watching online or you're in the balcony or you're on the main floor. I'm appealing to you to step out of the pews and come to the front and say, I will live out from underneath the dictates of fear. And I will let perfect love cast this fear out. There's a second group I'm inviting. The second group I'm inviting are those through which the Lordship of Christ needs to be Jesus, who paid the price to redeem us, is to be given lordship of our lives. I'm inviting that group as well to come forward in this last stanza. May God help each one of us to know the liberty and the freedom so that we might be bold and Satan might decide this, these Adventists are somebody to be afraid of because they're not moving by fear, they're living by faith and they're taking it a step at a time with Jesus. That's my invitation during this last verse. Let's sing it together.